little souvenir from David here. Is that his luxury item? Luxury item. Who wants to play? I told you to play, not me. Not me. No one wants to play. No energy. David, uh, he's a football fanatic. Had no more use for his football. And, um, on his way out, he threw me his football. I just wish I had the energy to throw it around. <laughs> the food situation out here is is really rough. We've got rice that we're starting to really conserve, three cups a day. So. My energy level is really low. I'm, I'm just putzing along in first gear. It's amazing how it depletes my strength and my endurance. Please. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay down and take a nap, man. Yeah. Steve doesn't really look like he has a lot of energy to do much, let alone tossed around a football. David kind of tossed it to Steve and said, have fun, but I don't know if Steve's used it yet. So we'll see how much that gets used. It might get used more as a pillow. Um, I tell you, my 13 years in the NFL was nothing compared to how tough and demanding that uh, 31 days out here uh, in Nicaragua in the wilderness and surviving off of rice and sleepless nights. A lot of growth came out of it, I learned a lot. All in all, really enjoyed the whole Survivor experience. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey there, what's going on everybody? It's your pal Tim Hanlon and it is Good Seats still available. Say it with me, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for finding us. We appreciate it. And uh, I, to be honest with you in that clip, I'm not sure if uh, our guest this week, Steve Wright, truly enjoyed his time. If you looked at the video <laughs> from his appearance in uh, the Survivor Series on CBS, Redemption Island, that version, that was the uh, 2011 spring season of Survivor Redemption Island. Steve Wright uh, was uh, one of the later uh, cast-offs from that year's episode. But you look at the video from that season 22 of that show, and uh, Steve Wright, our guest, was, uh, I, I, you could say, maybe almost emaciated looking. Uh, this is a professional football player, as we'll find out in our conversation coming up. Uh, who lost, I think, 30, 35 pounds, maybe even a little bit more. And you could hear sort of in his voice, he was already uh, kind of losing strength. And I guess it was about 30 days in uh, to that uh, that series' uh, visit to uh, Nicaragua, San Juan de Sur, I think it was. Uh, and um, that's just a, a brief uh, glimpse into one part of the life of our guest, Steve Wright, this week. Uh, you may know him from that Survivor uh, Redemption um, uh, experience. Uh, you also may know him uh, in the business world as the uh, founder of uh, Cloudburst, which is a, uh, a, a still used today uh, sideline mist cooling system that was uh, developed uh, at post his NFL football career. But of course, for people like us, uh, we are obsessed with any excuse to get into various teams and leagues and memories thereof uh, from uh, situations and, and 
and uh, those kinds of things that are no longer with us in professional sports. And Steve Wright has plenty of those. Um, you may know his professional football career spanned uh, from the Dallas Cowboys in 1981 uh, through uh, the Los Angeles Raiders uh, of, uh, till through 1993. Uh, in between stops in the uh, places like the Baltimore Colts. Uh, and he was part of the uh, transition, Steve was, between the Baltimore uh, and Indianapolis Colts, the uh, great sort of uh, midnight uh, uh, steal, if you will, of that team and that move. Uh, we get in a conversation around that. The Oakland Invaders uh, make an appearance. Steve was part of that team in 1985, uh, the uh, USFL championship game appearing, Oakland Invaders. And we talk about that and the bulk of Steve's career on the offensive line. His uh, position was offensive line, various uh, offensive tackle positions, a left and a right sides uh, was spent with the Los Angeles version of the Raiders from 1987 to 1993. Um, all kinds of uh, stars on that team, like Marcus Allen and Todd Christensen and um, Howie Long and all kinds of stuff. We get into all that, too. Um, so that is uh, the focus of our conversation uh, with our guest this week, Steve Wright, not only the survivor uh, redemption uh, participant uh, for quite some time, but a um, uh, a uh, an amazing uh, and uh, a lo- relatively long career for for the NFL these days uh, on the offensive line of all those teams, uh, both NFL and USFL, and um, that's our chat. And uh, the excuse is a brand new book that he has written, uh, co-written. Uh, with his uh, his wife Lizzie, it's called "Aggressively Human: Discovering Humanity in the NFL, Reality TV, and Life." And uh, it's a very interesting, almost Renaissance-like man uh, type of um, of uh, life and career uh, that Steve Wright has had. And uh, that book uh, you can get; it's a very compelling read. Uh, lots of great little uh, stories about the NFL and USFL football, but also after the fact too, what one does. Uh, after a, a professional football career. Um, not always the easiest thing, uh, as most pro athletes will tell you when um, sometimes by design or more often than not, uh, all of a sudden, uh, one's career comes uh, to an end in professional sports. Again, it's called Aggressively Human, Discovering Humanity in the NFL, Reality TV, and Life. Uh, it is um, uh, published by Kohler Books and it is available like most of our books are or other forms of media that uh, our guests may be promoting on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number. Gee, what number is it? Uh, I think it's number one. No, it's a three. One. 326. My goodness. I, I forget how many we've done over the years. Uh, our episode with Steve Wright, 326. Just look that up on the website and you'll find a convenient link or two to uh, the Aggressively Human book. You can get it in hardcover version. You can get it in paperback. Uh, You can get it in Kindle form. And it's also available in Audible audiobook form. All kinds of formats and editions to get uh, for Aggressively Human, uh, the book by Steve Wright. Our guest this week, let's get to it, shall we? It's a fun conversation, an intriguing one, a very interesting one. And uh, let's uh, check off a couple of boxes, a bunch of teams we haven't talked about yet in this in this crazy little show. Here's our conversation we had with Steve about two weeks back. Please, as always, enjoy. 
first of all, why don't you, for our audience, give us a bit of uh, of your uh, your professional football background uh, first for those who who don't know or perhaps maybe uh, uh, do remember. Um, you were you had quite the uh, the career in the um, in the eighties, in particular, early nineties as well. Um, you were uh, you were absolutely in the midst of uh, some crazy times in the National Football League. Yeah, I was really fortunate. Uh, see, I came out of college in '81 uh, as a free agent, signed with the Dallas Cowboys, one of 120 free agents that year. Three of us made it. Um, hung in there with the Raiders for, or with the Cowboys for a couple more years, and then was traded to the Baltimore Colts. And spent the last year that the Colts were in Baltimore with them and then went with them in the middle of the night to Indianapolis, the greatest move ever for the Colts. I just, uh, it, it still amazes me how, how, what a, what a sharp, uh, move that was. And then trying to renegotiate with the Colts after my four year contract was up and the USFL came calling with a wheelbarrow full of money and signed with the Michigan Panthers. And just my luck at this, I think about the same day or the very next day, they merged with the Oakland Invaders. And so those contracts would just merged into a Oakland Invader contract. And I landed out there in Oakland and we were in the championship game. The league folded. My head coach, Charlie Sumner, uh, had been the defensive coordinator with the L.A. Raiders for the previous 10 years. They brought him back. And he brought myself and Anthony Carter down to the down to Los Angeles, and I made the team there and hung in there for seven years until I retired in '94. Well, I mean, so that's that's a. There are so many different things that we're going to unpack from all of that, right? So let's let's back up. Then your um, your main position, you were largely on the the offensive line, offensive tackle, right, uh, for most of your career. Um, Correct. Was Correct. that was was that also in high school and college? And and how did you sort of how did you evolve as a football player? When did you know when you were growing up that maybe you had what it took to potentially go to the pro level? And and even embedded in that, going to a college that wasn't really necessarily on the the major collegiate football radar, and uh, and getting into the NFL without being drafted. Yeah, it's a it's a whole lot in there, but it's a great question. I uh, I played tight end in high school. I received a full scholarship to go to University of Northern Iowa uh, and played tight end there my freshman year. Uh, sophomore, junior year, they moved me to offensive line and then put me back out at tight end my senior year. Um, sprained my ankle, uh, I think the, about the sixth game, and really sprained the bad and missed the last four games of the year. And so subsequently, I think that may have had something to do with possibly me missing the, the draft, or at least that's my excuse why I didn't get drafted, which turned out to be a huge blessing. And then landed with, uh, you know, the Cowboys and just got stuck in the line. Um, but I did move around from right to left side, uh, out here with the Raiders. I played, I got stuck at center a couple times, um, played both guards and always played tight end on short yards and goal line. How do you miss the draft, and then how do you get how do you get on the the the, the attention of, of the Cowboys 
after the draft? Like, what's that scenario like? Yeah, and to be honest with you, I was I, in high school. I was just really surprised that I was just having a ball playing football, and then all of a sudden, I started getting scholarship offers, and it just blew me away. So I signed with the with UNI, and then uh, I hadn't really thought much about the pros. I just, there was no way I was going to make the pros. I wasn't even all conference in my college. So kind of one thing led to another and just ended up in Dallas. Uh, well, 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 hold on a second. See, I, I, that, that, I mean, uh, that doesn't, I, it, that doesn't magically happen. I mean, look, the, the early eighties, right. The Cowboys were like, you know, that was America's team. It was pretty much being cemented. Like you must've got on right. the radar somehow for something unique. Yes, I had, well, I had Seattle and I had uh, Cleveland Browns and a couple other teams showing interest. And it was just as a free agent. Uh, again, I wasn't even all conference, so I wasn't a star by any means. So, so you were doing um, tryouts and stuff and workouts and all that kind of stuff, getting on people's radars that way? Or, or they, had you been scouting they, somehow? They, yeah, they didn't have that back then. There was no combine or anything. It's just uh, I had my choice of where to sign. Uh, after the draft, I was at a party and I didn't get drafted. And so I ended up back to my house and a guy from the Cleveland Browns and the Cowboys were sitting there on my step, like just waiting for me. And I and so I just they said, who do you want to sign with? And that's how, how simple and archaic it was. And so I said, I want to go with Dallas. We went to the guy's hotel room and signed a little uh, three-year contract. And they brought in, back then, they, they brought in 120 free agents. I don't know what, what the free agency is now, how many how many guys they bring into camp, but 120 is a whole boatload. And yeah, and just three of us made it. I had five, five other roommates in training camp and they all disappeared. And I spent the last two or three weeks in my six bedroom place, six bed room by myself. And it was just, uh, my, my thing has always been, and I, I preach this all the time is, is just fighting like hell and staying focused for the very next day. We would sit around in the room with these five other, uh, rookies trying to make the team. And these guys were all worried about the preseason game against the 49ers or whoever it was going to be coming up that weekend. And it was Monday or Tuesday. I just thought about the next morning's practice. We had two practices a day. I wasn't even thinking about the afternoon practice. All I could think about and focus on was, was the morning practice. And then in the, and then I just like to say there's, you know, 10 drills or something in the morning practice that we always go through. And I didn't even think of the next nine. All I, my, my focus was just on the very next one and just doing the best I could because I know you could get cut right away, which guys were getting cut every day, multiple, multiple players. And so it was just all I could do was be the very best I could be for that drill. And then, the, then after you get through all that, then the weekend finally comes. But all these guys that were thinking way out ahead and kind of saving themselves a little bit for the big scrimmage coming up, the, the preseason game or something, or maybe it was just a scrimmage. Those guys all disappeared. So it's just I, I learned somehow, and I'm not sure how it is, but stay really in the in the now. And it sounds, you know, it's such a cliche word now. But back then, I don't really remember anybody really talking about it, but I, I somehow found it, and it, uh, it it kept me focused on what needed to be taken care of right then. Was it was it also maybe a little of like you didn't know what you didn't know, like meaning you didn't have any sort of preconceptions, you hadn't sure. been drafted. It's kind of like you know, might as well I'll do do my best and you know 100%. see where the chips chips land. 
Yep, hundred percent. And just whatever it is, and that's the theme of my book is just uh, plow through any cracked door if it's business or an opportunity to play for the Dallas Cowboys I figured I could always end up and I didn't know the difference but if I if I stayed with the Cowboys long enough and I got cut the third or fourth week that I could still go to any other team which I don't think that was true but that was my thinking so just give it hell as long as I can and then I made it yeah, you say you you have a little uh, anecdote in the book, sort of how uh, how you sort of took it, or or, or you're let's put it this way: you didn't necessarily uh, anticipate it when you were uh, being called into the room. Say, say that I'm so, sorry. Yeah, you were not you were not necessarily expecting per se that you were going to be in make the final cut for the team. I I didn't believe it, um, and I just uh, we broke camp, and I was back uh, just waiting in a hotel room pacing and i talk all about it in my book um the first chapter just pacing a trench in my room and outgoing calls only to family and friends for support and then i got an incoming call from a guy named gil brandt um who messed with me on the call said he really appreciated you know my effort and thanked me a lot and it sounded like i was on my way out and he said hey just want to tell you congratulations you are now a dallas cowboy and I just exploded. Um, yeah, for just a, a guy coming out of northern Iowa, also, too, on top of that, uh, the number one and number three draft picks that year were offensive linemen. It was the first time they ever kept 11 offensive linemen. They couldn't get rid of me. I was just uh, hustling and doing everything they needed. And I got some fun stories in there of elaborating on that where – I, I saved a timeout in a preseason game on, on the punts. Everybody was, or Danny White was out getting ready to punt, and we're, guys are still trying to make the team. And Danny White's, uh, White is getting ready to punt, and he's counting, and he's only got nine guys in front of him. He's missing somebody. He starts waving his arm, and nobody's moving. The coaches are all looking around trying to figure out who it is. I didn't, I, that wasn't my position. I didn't know what to do. I just bolted onto the field. Kind of, kind of crazy, you know, when you really think about it, but – um, just jumped into the hole and they told me who to block and, and Danny got his punt off and I came back and man, I had more slaps on my back and way to, way to go. And it was just being alert and hustling and ready to do anything to uh, help the team. And, and your, your rookie season was a pretty darn good season for the, for, for the Cowboys. They were, uh, playoffs and, and all that kind of stuff. And obviously they were, you know, this is a legendary Tom Landry uh, you know, rain, uh, if you will. And, um, how much, how much action did you see? And, um, uh, you did a lot of special team stuff mostly, right. Versus being, uh, on, uh, on Correct. the offensive side, right. Yeah. So I think we finished the year 12 and four. Um, we were playing up in Minneapolis on the first Monday night game at the new Metrodome in uh, 19. It was January of, I think it was January of 82, and it was just freezing outside, and we're returning the kickoff, which is the team I'm on, and we fumbled the ball on the half-yard line. And so I'm coming off the field, and my offensive line coach meets me halfway and says, hey, take that right guard spot. Kurt Peterson, the, the regular, his shoe came off, and he couldn't get it back on. So he's stumbling around, and he ended up trotting off. I went in, and there was a timeout. This is Monday Night Football. There was a timeout, and so I'm standing there in the huddle, as the youngest guy in the huddle, I've got 35 tickets right there in between the goalposts in the end zone, three rows up, my neighbors, my buddies I went to high school with, my parents. Um, 
And I'm looking and there's Drew Pearson in the huddle with me, who four years earlier, I'm sitting at the Met before they built the stadium and it's snowing and probably 20 degrees below zero. It was the NFC championship game. And Drew Pearson caught what's coined as the Hail Mary to beat the Minnesota Vikings to go to the Super Bowl. Sure. Remember and that now he well. was, sure. And, yeah. And that's, and I'm in 10th grade. So now four years later, there's a dome Monday night football and I'm got Drew Pearson and Tony Dorsett as my teammates. I'm 21 years old. It's just, it's, it's mind boggling. And I, I go, I go into great length of the, in the story of just, you know, it's an out of body experience. It was, uh, I'm looking at my family, I'm giving thumbs up and Danny white called uh, a play just to get us a couple of yards, Danny, uh, for, uh, Tony Dorsett to run up the middle, just to get a few yards. And Tony ran between me and the center for 99 and a half yards. And so I, we all run down there and come off the field and, and the right guard took his position. So I was only in for one offensive play and it went right into the hall of fame. But, but yes, uh, in many other games, uh, the, the Cowboys were so dominant, like out here, we were playing the Rams and I got thrown in against Jack Youngblood. Um, and you know, it just pretty much got my ass handed to me. I think I got two holding calls, but, um, you know, I'm 21 just hanging on to Jack for dear life. Uh, yeah. So I, I got quite a bit of playing time for a young guy, but then when I got traded, it was, uh, it was really a blessing in disguise. I got to move right into the Baltimore Colts starting lineup from being a, you know, backup the, the previous two years. And I would have probably, you know, most likely stayed a backup for a few years. So it was, uh, I was really bummed at the time, but it turned out to be perfect. It was just, it couldn't have lined up any better to get to Baltimore and, and you know, start getting some serious playing time in. All right. Well, before we go to the Charm City, I, I want to, I want a couple, uh, one question on Dallas. It, it, in the book, it does seem like you had a pretty good time being a cowboy, not necessarily always on the field per se, but certainly off the field. Um, arguably you could not have picked a better team to kind of be initiated, shall we say, into the NFL, right? It wasn't a Cleveland for that matter. Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, I tell some pretty wacky stories of being 21 years old playing for America's team. It's the early eighties and the show Dallas was just kicking off. It was, it was big cars, big hair, big wallets. Everybody would be out in the clubs and, you know, that's a, that's a bad place to put a 21 year old with, you know, a pocket full of money. And I bought a uh, Cadillac convertible cowboy blue with a white top and, you know, got the gold chain and, you know, looking pretty silly. And, um, but yeah, I had the time of my life and thank God I made it through and, uh, got to Baltimore and there was nothing to do there. So I think I slept for the next six months and played football. Do, do you remember anything about uh, the uh, the player strike in 82, your second and final sure. season with the Cowboys? Like, sure. what, did, yeah. what was, yeah. what was yeah. that like? And, and, and did you did you play any of those uh, players association games that were, you know, uh, done yeah. in, in between the uh, while the strike was no. going on and stuff? To be honest with you, I don't, I don't remember those. Um, but I, Most I do. Remember, don't. I, <laughs> that's that's I, why we're uh, here. But yeah, there were there were two exhibition games that the Players Association put on and then they had to cancel them because after that, because they nobody's watching them. Yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't play in those. I was walking the picket line. Now had my had my my uh, placard over my head and and walking the the picket line. Um, but 
No, I don't remember a whole lot from that. Um, I didn't bring that up in the book. I talked more about the 87 strike out here in Los Angeles. But uh, I think we did. We we had a few basketball games that Drew Pierce and some of the guys invited me to. And so we were staying active um, away from away from the uh, practice facility. All right. Well, tell us how you indeed do get to Baltimore. Um, um, you have a, a pretty interesting little uh, anecdote in in the book that kind of sort of tells that story, but also maybe a little bit of a lesson learned uh, as you found out. You want to tell us how you found out, but from whom and 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 sure. what you were thinking of what you were going into when when Baltimore was the place you were told you were going. Yeah, it was the fourth preseason game. Uh, we're at pregame meal with Dallas. And I'm just finishing and had noticed that Landry was just walking around. Um, and I finished eating. And as soon as I put my fork down, I'll never forget, he just leaned over my shoulder and said, hey, Steve, take a walk with me. And I looked across the, I was just looked at everybody, you know, at this, this, because you, everybody knew that something had to happen. It was between myself and a, one or two other guys that were looking to get traded. Um, just, just caught up in the numbers. And Butch Johnson, um, one of the wide receivers there, he just dropped his paper and looked over the top of it. And I'll never forget him closing his eyes. He was crushed, too, and just shook his head and, I, and then lifted his paper back up. And I about threw up. And so I got up and I went for a walk with, with Landry. And he said, and it was just a real short conversation. It was two minutes. He said, Steve, we just made a trade with you to the Baltimore Colts. And you've got a flight today at 1 o'clock. And I think it was probably eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> I just said, what? You, you can't even, I don't even have time to go home and get a pair of clothes, a, a change of clothes. So I negotiated to fly out at four o'clock instead of one o'clock and, and did everything I possibly could do, you know, shutting off the electricity to the house and saying goodbye to friends and packing as much as I could and jumped on a plane for Baltimore and did my little song and dance stories to all the flight attendants and they felt bad for me and kept feeding me bottles of, you know, the little bottles of vodka. And so I sucked down a few of those and it's honestly the first time and only time in my life I've ever gotten drunk just because I felt so crummy and crushed, you know, leaving America's team for the Baltimore Colts, really, you know, it's just, it was a crusher. So then I got to the hotel and stumbled around in there, and and it it uh, it turned out we all sucked together, but we had fun together. We were it was a really tight knit uh, family of guys um, that uh, I was fortunate to play with. We had what I consider the worst coach you know ever, in Frank Kush. I just uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I wanna... I'll, I'll let people buy the book and 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 get some of those insights. But uh, please yeah. go, don't let me stop you. Yeah, I just, I just he was just an inferior man that uh, had a big chip on his shoulder and didn't know how to deal with men. Um, he was used to screaming at young kids, and the, you know, that's what I was always bugged me when college coaches call these guys kids and they're you know eighteen years or they're twenty nineteen twenty years old and they're you know, big men and they're calling them kids, but that's what he was used to dealing with kids. And, uh, so their other coaches didn't respect them. And, um, we made the most of it though. But, uh, the playing environment, uh, the stadium, uh, the fans, 
uh, the competitiveness of the team. I guess you went seven and nine that first season that you were there. Um, and perhaps, what about rumors of the team leaving? Uh, did you know any of that that first season? No, no, there was there was no rumors. Um, the, the season finished up. Uh, yeah, this the stadium was just a drag to play in. It was so old, I, and I've got it in my book here. They they, they called it the, the largest uh, insane outdoor insane asylum. Um, there was probably twenty, maybe thirty percent filled and the ones that were there were you know rowdy and throwing drinks and my parents flew out for a game and and we were going to go to dinner and they sh- I met them out in the parking lot and they were just you could tell they had beers thrown at them and it was it was pretty miserable but um where's I going with that thought um, Baltimore it's a bit of a bit of a different experience than what you were used to the carpet and the uh the, the palace that was Texas Stadium yeah. And then, oh, you had asked about rumors. And no, we had, none of us had heard a thing about it. And then I was back at my house in Dallas and watching, I think it was ESPN at the time. And it came on that the Baltimore Colts had moved. They weren't moving. They had they, they moved to Indianapolis. And I still had my apartment back there with all my things. And I was like, what? So I had to get back there and and rent a U-Haul and dump everything in there and then drive it over to Indianapolis. And- wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you're on the roster. This is yeah. off-season. This is in the winter, yeah. I think it was, right? Sometime in the winter. Yeah. I remember the vivid vivid Mayflower moving trucks vividly on, on the television. And you didn't know? Nobody gave you a heads up? Nobody knew? No, nobody said a word. Um, yeah, it was I, my jaw dropped. And, and when I was sitting in my home in Dallas, I just, I, I couldn't believe it. It's just... I didn't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing, but it was a shocking thing that we were moving and my time in Baltimore was over. All right, let me talk to you about DraftKings Sportsbook. Hey, you know, there's so much to be thankful for this holiday season. Family, friends, food, and of course, NFL football all week long. DraftKings Sportsbook is keeping your Thanksgiving week full of action. New customers can bet just 5 bucks on the NFL action to score 150 instantly in bonus bets. Hey, no matter the appetite, there's something for you. Money lines, parlays, props, live bets, and so much more. You name it, they've got it. Uh, and look, there are a whole bunch of different uh, NFL games, including maybe it's that uh, Dolphins-Jets game on prime video that friday afternoon black friday game uh in the afternoon at the uh, at the meadowlands and maybe the jets will actually surprise and come out from uh, the darkness and and defeat miami after their uh, hot start who knows what the, the line is is going to be on that by the time you hear this but one of just many many games that you can play on DraftKings sportsbook so download the DraftKings sportsbook app now use the code good seats and all new customers can bet five on the NFL Thanksgiving action to score 150 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sporting sports, he says, betting partner of the NFL, and using that code GOODSEATS. Again, that's DraftKings Sportsbook. The crown is yours. <sighs> Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In New York, call 877 8 hope ny or text hope ny 
467-369. In West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. Please play responsibly. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling by calling 888-789-7777 or visiting ccpg.org. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, Kansas. Must be 21 or older in most eligible states, but age varies by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Eligibility and deposit restrictions apply. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. Terms at sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms. <sighs> and now... Back to our conversation. So what, what what happens? I mean, like like methodically, like what do you like? What do you do? Do you get on the phone? You try to verify it's true? Do you? Uh, what, what do you? I mean, like, uh, does the organization reach out to you or what? I mean, it just seems nuts. Yeah, I don't remember the details, but um, I'm sure I talked to somebody back there, and they said, "Yeah, you, you know, we're we're out of here. We're in Indianapolis. So do what you got to do to." you know, get settled into a new place here in Indy. And they didn't know I had an apartment still sitting there and ready to go with all my furniture that I'd probably rented. And so, yeah, we went back there and loaded up and yeah, it was a secret to everybody. It was just the best kept secret ever. Um, and especially I just, uh, it was so smart for the Ursays to load up and move on because like I said, there's, you know, 20 to 30% capacity. They hated it at Colts. I used to just for fun, if I was sitting in a bar and I had a couple guys on each side of me and whatever, watching a game or something or having a beer, I'd say something like, man, what do you guys think of the Colts or something? And they'd say, oh, man, they suck. And I'd just say, how about that Steve Wright, that new kid that came from uh, Dallas? What do you think of him? He kind of sucks, doesn't he? Yeah, and nobody knew who you were. <laughs> they, they, did, they, did, they, they didn't like the And I just did it just to see how they felt about the Colts. And they'd say, oh, the Colts suck. And. There was just no support. They hated the Ursays. And so Robert Ursay goes from, uh, you know, uh, 30,000, you know, 20,000 people at the game to go to Indianapolis. And I think he pays $1 rent for the next 10 years and it packs the place. And the money just starts pouring in. And, you know, then he's got Peyton Manning and a Super Bowl. And yeah, it was just it was absolutely brilliant. And he had to do it. Yeah, he so- sounds like a real winner of a, of a, of an owner, though, right? I'm not sure the players necessarily. Well, you tell me. Uh, how did they feel about him as the owner, and and how did they feel about being sort of in the middle of this situation, not of their own doing? Yeah, I don't think anybody was was real warm and cuddly towards him, nor him towards them. I never had an issue with him because I carried a contract from the Cowboys, and so I never had to deal with them until the very end when we were in Indianapolis. And it just, I, I, I could tell right away it wasn't happening. I actually wasn't dealing with him. I was dealing with Bert, uh, Ernie, Ernie Kosar. I think his name was Ernie. I can't believe I just pulled that name up. Ernie Kosar um, was the president of the Coles. And I dealt with him and uh, just not even close to what I was looking for. And then on top of that, just with the USFL, just throwing money around. Well, um, it was a super easy decision. No, nobody respected Robert Ursay. Well, you, um, you were getting you were getting playing time. That was good, right? And that was arguably yeah. what you were t- talking yeah. about. Right? You were getting you're proving yourself. I mean, you were you played most of this both of those seasons, right? Yeah, 
Yes, I did. And it uh, it just really helped my ability. And, um, you know, obviously uh, got the attention of the USFL. And so, yeah, it was it was an easy decision. And after the team moved, you know, I was traded to Baltimore. And then without me knowing it, that, you know, the carpet gets pulled out and I end up in Indianapolis. Wait a minute. I got to start looking out for myself. And so. Um, I signed with the invaders and then go out to Los Angeles. And the first thing is a strike. And so I'm walking the picket line out there with everybody for whatever, I don't know, the first 30 days or something. And guys are disappearing. We're all working out together in El Segundo and guys just started disappearing. So I split and I went over to see my parents in Phoenix for, which was going to be a couple of days. And as soon as I got over there, my First afternoon, uh, we were just sitting down to dinner. Al Locasal called right in the middle of dinner and said, hey, Al wants you back here. And it's basically to come in as a scab. Um, but he wants you to come back right now, and he's going to up it 25%. He's going to guarantee so-and-so. And I said, great. Uh, that's awesome. I said, I'm having dinner here with the folks. I just want to kind of get away from it. I'll call you tomorrow. He goes, oh. So I hung up. Five minutes later, he calls back and says, Steve, Al's pissed now. He's going to guarantee 50% of it. He's going to put your, your, raise your, your contract up to this, but you got to get back here. And I said, great. I, I really appreciate it. And this is honest truth. I said, I will call you back in the morning and which I was really going to do. And I just didn't want to talk about it. It was dinner time, And I was sitting there with my parents who I hadn't seen in a while. So I hung up, he calls back and says, Steve, this is it. Al's guaranteeing 100% of the contract and he's moving it up to this, but you got to be back here for practice in the morning. And I, I write about this in the book and I, I said, listen to this. And I dropped my fork and let him hear it. And I said, I'm on the next plane and drove out to the airport, flew back to Los Angeles, drove into the El Segundo facility there. And a couple of guys were walking around. Mike Hayes was one of them, Mike Haynes. And Mike stood in front of my car and we kind of, I was just like, dude, I, I'm coming in. You know, I hope you move out of the way. And so I was one of the first scabs to, you know, of, of the, you know, the, the players. They had other, you know, the games going on. But this is when the floodgates opened and that afternoon, because it was, it was, you could tell just from the media and everything else, it was breaking. And so I went in in the morning and that afternoon, Howie and Mike Haynes and just the whole team came back in. So I, this is where I had to look out for myself after whatever it was, 45 days of being on strike. I had to, I had to take care of myself at that point, but then I knew it was going to break. So everybody comes in and I was the only one in that locker room and I, I was the only one in that locker room that had a 100% guaranteed contract from what I believe. And I jacked my salary up. And these guys, you know, came in three hours after I did. So I just uh, I had to look out for myself at that point. Well, look, and, it, and, 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 and it, it paid off. That happens a lot of times when strike scenarios happen. But but let me back up for a second. So and we'll get back to the invaders for a second uh, in a minute, because I, I don't want to sort of completely forget that blip. But so so tell me, you, you're you're you have a contract with the Raiders as an actual roster player. And the players go on strike. This is 1987. Yeah. And the, I guess it was the third week of the season or so. And yet you are, you become a replacement player? I mean, was that literally? I, I was I was going to be. Okay. 
I, I was I was all set to be a replacement player as long as they paid me what they said they were going to pay me. I was I was dead set to be called a scab and and everything else at that point. Didn't that mean? I mean, okay, so but that, isn't that okay? I'm, I I don't remember the scenario and the situation all that clearly, but doesn't that put you in an awkward position? I mean, how does that? How do you? Sure. Sure. Okay. Uh, sure. So, I, how, how was, common was that that thought that well, process? I was in an I was in an awkward position when I finished my my meal, and Tom Landry said, "Hey, we traded you, and you're gone in four hours." And I was in an awkward position when I'm sitting in Dallas watching ESPN, and I see that uh, my team that was was in Baltimore is now in Indianapolis. And then I was in an awkward position when. I wasn't getting anywhere near what I deserved uh, at uh, with the Colts in Indianapolis. So I go out to uh, Oakland uh, to play for the Invaders, and I'm set with a really juicy three-year contract. And then I get that taken away from me because the league folds. So now I'm, you know, you got to look out for yourself. Sure, I'm a team guy to the core more than I, I would say, you know, almost anybody I can think of. Um, live and die for the team, but at some point you got to look out for yourself. And so, yeah, there was awkward, uh, there was awkward moments with not just me, but between a lot of players. There was a lot of after during practice, there was a lot of little scuffles out in the field, and everybody was everybody was pissed because there were I think there was probably some other scabs, some other guys that were players that were out there too. I just remember there was just a lot of friction that year. Well, so you you played a bunch of replacement games though, right? No, I played, uh, I think it was like one or something like that, but I played it with everybody else. Got it. Right. Okay. So this is, you, you would ask, so this was, okay. So this, in essence, you were, this wasn't like, this is sort of a, a, a built up sort of scenario where certain players, I guess, had sort of very similarly maybe thought, Hey, you know what, we got to eventually start to, to like you look out for ourselves here per se. And, and arguably, weakens the 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 strike movement i guess which to the detriment perhaps of the players uh, association but but yeah i mean these are human beings right these are players who may or may not have uh great contract situations like you essentially did at the time yeah. uh more tenuous maybe hadn't gone through some of those uh situations that you had earlier in your career that wisened you up um right. it's it's got to be very very challenging on on players who already know that they're, you know, part of a business and it's not necessarily the, in their control. Uh, right, on right, on, right on, Tim. You, you're hitting it right on the head because I'm, I'm here. I'm 28 years old and I just landed in, in Los Angeles and basically got my contract doubled and guaranteed. It was like I would have gone out and played with third graders, uh, you know, if I had to. Um, I was going to I had a I had a good chunk of money that that nobody else really had the guaranteed contract. So I was ready to take care of Steve. I, Steve had, Steve had been walking the picket line for 30 something days out in front of the El Segundo offices. And it's two floors in the second floor. Al Davis would always stand up there and watch the guys picket in front. I'm a new guy on the team. All those other guys were, had been there for years and their number one draft pick was an offensive lineman, John Clay. Um, he's out there walking too, and it's just uh, at at some point, and he's appearing. So I'm out there, and I'm not going to drop any names, but 
they all disappeared. And I'm the new guy on the block, and I'm still out there pacing around. Finally, after the 30th day, I said, you know, screw this. I'm going to go chill out for a little bit because this is going to go on. But then when I got back, um, things started kind of happening fast to where the the union was going to be broken. And I said, shit, what the, what the heck? Um, I'm going to take this money and go back in. And then just by chance, it did break and everybody else came back in. So you didn't have, there were no repercussions against you then per se, or, no. or was it, was there tension coming back or, or, or was it because of that unique situation in that you were sort of near the, maybe the end of the, the strike, if you will, almost unwit, unwittingly, uh, that, that every, and there were others that were kind of going along with that eventuality at the same time, because I would, I would imagine under regular, regular strike circumstances, right? Um, it, it would not be that uh, accommodating when you came back. Yeah, probably not. But again, it's, uh, yeah, sure. There was natural tensions among all the players that year. I don't remember. I think we had a losing season. I think we had a, we were under 500%, I think. But yeah, there was a lot of tensions in the locker room and on the field. And But the, the only thing I know is, you know, I was I was happy as a lark. You know, I, I, I had the bank. Um, I was a new guy in Los Angeles, and I was going to give it hell for the team. You know, no matter what the players were, if it was Howie out there or Joe Blow playing his position, um, I knew it was going to break at some point, and I was going to take my guaranteed money. Um, you know, I'd, I'd been that was that was what my sixth or seventh year. Um, so I was, and I. I struggled with with contracts at at multiple places and traded and moves and and nobody cared for Steve you you really you learn early that you're a product and so this product was going to take care of himself team team I'd say probably you know to be honest with you, myself first but team right there with it I was going to do everything I can for the team and I always did and that's what always everybody's always remembered me as is just a good team player, you know, cool with everybody and a fighter and someone that I totally dislike, maybe on the team. If they're in a fight, I'm coming over the top of the back of them to take down anybody else's, you know, getting after one of my guys, no matter who they are. How uh, so? You spent the uh, the the most amount of uh, time in your uh, pro career with uh, with the Raiders in Los Angeles. Well, you, you're talking about some some players. Maybe uh, tell me some players that that you hung around with that uh, some of us might remember. You mentioned Howie. I mean, that's Howie Long, of course. Um, yeah. What was it like playing in L.A. as the Raiders? Because that was an interesting period of time being in the Raider organization was always interesting, right? No, there's no make no mistake what city it was located in. But it was also this sort of, I don't know, second thought of it was a second team in Los Angeles and then it was the only team for a while and and there was always that Oakland thing that was before and after and 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 frankly the culture of LA at that time, right? It was explosively uh, sure. right and and you obviously you were in the years prior to that, right? But the Raiders were not necessarily they were, you know, they were a rough and tough team. Yeah. I mean, you had, you know, you had Gretzky coming down here with the Kings and it was showtime with Magic and Jabbar and Cooper. And and so we would just would get through with practice and walk go and drive over to uh, 
the stadium there and go watch a basketball game and have you know great seats and do whatever we want to do yeah you're 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 spot on with it was an amazing time in los angeles um yeah it's just uh playing you know i practiced every, every day i practiced against howie long um who just made me a better player and we hung out a little bit um i always really put an effort into and i guess it really wasn't conscious um just kind of getting away from the guys uh to go do my own thing i had other buddies there that maybe from college or guys i had met and so i lived down in uh, hermosa beach and uh, a lot of the players lived around manhattan or hermosa beach but i always kind of just enjoyed getting away and doing something different uh, getting away from the football mentality. Um, I did go on plenty of things, you know, Thursday nights, uh, 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 we'd have a camaraderie night at a bar in Manhattan beach ponchos that, um, was a lot of fun and we'd all hang out. And, but other than that, um, Steve Berline, Mike Dial, um, Andy Parker, um, there was quite a, uh, let's see. Um, uh, Bruce Wilkerson, um, you know, would meet at a club or something like that or go to dinner. But most of the time I was off doing things with, with other buddies. Uh, I lived on the sand down in Hermosa and, uh, just, it was just a whole nother world away from it. And then I didn't have to put on the, the macho thing of just being a big tough guy. And, you know, instead of strolling into some bar with, you know, 10 other guys all weighing 300 pounds, you know, I just, I just enjoyed kind of just slinking into a corner with some friends and, um, being a little more inconspicuous and, um, then get back up to football and do the thing with all the boys. And they didn't miss me and I didn't miss them, but there was always love, you know, between all of us. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a job. How about the, uh, the Coliseum, the fans, uh, the Raider culture, the Davises, all that kind of stuff. Any, I mean, obviously, it's a job. It's the team you're on and all that stuff. But, I mean, the fact that you were there for a good seven seasons or so, obviously, there was kind of a, a mutual like there, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing I really am proud of, and it's almost more proud than I am of my NFL career, um, was was the misting company that I brought to the Raiders to cool our sidelines that ended up turning into – a pretty monstrous business that uh, I incorporated when the team moved to Oakland um, called it Cloudburst and I landed uh, one side of my business in about 1500 Home Depots and Lowe's and Targets and Costco's and and then uh, that was just uh, using the house water pressure on a spigot outside to cool your patio off or put them on the fans that we had on the sidelines and had them on aircraft carriers. I landed the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta. And this was all on my own with my partner. I brought in a buddy that uh, could handle the, the books for me, or us. And I was out selling. And um, some, some good stories about that and how I landed the Olympics over GE and Raytheon and a lot of other large companies. Um, just treating people right that came back to me tenfold. A guy was a shoe salesman and uh, with the Raiders, and no one wanted to talk to him. He had this new football shoe, and um, he was the lone salesman, and I ended up taking his shoe and tried it in a game, and he was a hero uh, with his startup company. 
And then coincidentally, five years later, I've got my misting company. I go to Atlanta and turns out he is the decision maker for whatever equipment goes on the Olympic Stadium fields uh, in all their venues in Birmingham, Alabama and Miami and Washington, D.C. at the soccer venues and all over Olympic Stadium. Um, he gave me the contract and uh, he, I, he said because I treated him like, like, you know, with respect and believed in him because I believe in you. And it was uh, it was amazing karma that they came back to me. And that's all from just treating people right. And that's a lot of the theme of my book is the good stuff that comes back to you. If you just treat everybody the same and treat them with respect and empathy and compassion. And that's where kind of the aggressively human thing came in. Did, did you did you have any real sense that something like that could happen while you were playing with the Raiders or or did, did, like were you sort of entrepreneurially thinking about stuff while, uh, during the offseason and that kind of stuff? No, I, I, it's not something I'm thinking about. But if I see something and it makes sense, um, I, I massage it. And, and uh, if it's interesting, start doing something with it where my wife and I traveled around the world. Um, a couple years ago, three years ago, right before the pandemic, and we were going through Indonesia, and you know it's kind of a funky topic, but people over there don't use the toilet; they squat in in a hole in the ground um, in a good majority of the places. And the more I looked into it, physiologically, that is the best way to have a full elimination of your colon. Um, and the more I looked into it, I ended up patenting, patenting a toilet, a new toilet. And I call it the Courtesy 180. And so after this book starts mellowing out, I'm going to be out pushing it, which I have already done once. But I hold this patent now for the next 20 years. And it's uh, ADA compliant. So wheelchairs can roll up to it. And it's got, you know, the squatty potty where you step up and you put your feet up. You, ideally, you want your knees above your hips to help open the, the channel. And so I've got this built into it and it's, you turn around backwards. It's the courtesy 180. And so the flusher and the toilet paper and everything is right in front of you. And you put your arms up on top of the tank instead of on your knees and, you know, looking out into nothing. This is, uh, it's, it's totally unique and it's a wide, uh, wide ranging patent. So I'm really covered for any, um, toilet manufacturer, they can't bring anything into the States and they can't manufacture anything within the States to send out or keep here. You hear, so, you hear that American standard and Toto, uh, you stay away. Okay. No. So let me, all right. So, so Lord, what I'm, I'm going to go what? to them. There, those, those, hopefully one of those will, will take a 10 year lease or buy my, or buy my patent. There you go. That's what we're looking for. So you mentioned squatty potty. All right, I'll bite. So uh, yeah. not literally, but what? What um, is that competitor? Is it uh, complementary? Is it uh, inspiration? Is it patent potentially uh, uh, well, infringing? What? No, it's it's uh, it's uh, inspirational. That's that's what inspired me. I got back and I started digging into why are they squatting, and then looked into the squatty potty and realized that that lifts your knees up so that no there's no that's a that's a standalone product mine's built i have ramps built into mine Interesting. and the toilet seat is wider for the bigger rear ends that are increasingly in size uh it's got a pole on it for an older person or a handicapped person to grab a hold of and lift yourself up it has handles on each side 
his trick. Amazing. And this is really, I mean, so this is, this is a, it's really an incredible story. You've got some really interesting, uh, uh, career diversions and, and, uh, things that people would not have ordinarily imagined yeah. would be the next step. Well, it's, it's, again, it's kind of get back to what I'm, what I was saying earlier. It's if you see an opportunity and I, I it's not that I'm looking for opportunities. It's, I just, uh, I'm very present wherever I am. Um, I'm in there squatting. I'm very present to where I am. I'm not thinking about how bad I want to get out of here and get back on the beach and run down and get in the water or anything else. It's, you know, why is it like this? This is, this is so odd, but it's just staying very present. Um, and, um, like the, the misting system over in Palm Springs, I, it, it's nothing that I patented. I just found a thousand different applications for it than cooling off some people in the desert at a restaurant. It, I, I, I put it, I sold it to plastic extruder plants that they make kayaks. They pour uh, the molten plastic into a metal mold. And the quicker they can get that metal mold cooled and get that kayak dumped out and re-poured, boom, revenue starts going up. So we put a bunch of them, we put them in coal mines to settle the dust. Um, it just uh, had them in Burlington Northern out in the you know, out in the heat in the desert, you know, putting tracks or doing track maintenance. And now they've got an air conditioning system dropping it, you know, 30 degrees right in front of it. Yeah. It's just, uh, the, the possibilities, it's just, uh, keeping an eye open and, and, uh, how can things be done better? All right. Two last things that, uh, I want to, uh, rem- um, reminisce with you about when, when you were present in those environments, um, that we've glossed over, um, one is Survivor. Uh, tell me about that story. How do you get onto that reality show in its 22nd I, season? I had I had never seen the show. I was down at Fox Studio. I go down there a time or two a year and hang out with Howie and and all the guys. Uh, Jimmy Johnson, the year before, had been on Survivor. Uh, and he, one of his guests, was the lead casting director for the show. And... She ended up talking me into trying out for the uh, finals that had been all, the the it had been going on all year, breaking it down to the finals that were coming up in three weeks. I went to that. Long story short, I ended up in Nicaragua and lost thirty three pounds in thirty one days, and um, absolutely a miserable, uh, wonderfully miserable time. Um, uh, one I would never trade again. I would. It was just an awesome time. It was extremely difficult. You really um, find out who you are when you're starving. I had a whole new uh, empathy and compassion for people that that are starving and don't have enough to eat. I, after losing 33 pounds in 31 days, I came back with so much bacteria in my front tooth. Uh, my dentist pulled that out on my first visit. Uh, I said, this kills people in third world countries. It was, uh, they called a couple years later, asked if I wanted to do it again. And I hung up the phone so fast. Um, not a, not a chance, but it was, I'm really glad that I, I just plowed through that door. I'd never seen the show, but it, uh, all of a sudden it's this wacky idea. Sure. Cause one of my big things in life is never saying a, a woulda, coulda, shoulda. You hear a lot of people, damn, I wish I would have done that. You know, it's just, I don't, I don't have one of those. I might run into a wall or I might go down there and, you know, lose a limb or some ugly thing happen, but, or lose a front tooth or, you know, uh, spend a bunch of money on trying to patent something. And, you know, this, that my toilet may never happen, but 
you know, at least I, I gave it a shot and know that I gave it a shot and it's sitting here and I own it for 20 years. So it's just, uh, um, plowing through an open door. If a crack opens, I, I can't recommend that more to everybody. I tell it to all young people. It's, you, you got an opportunity, go. Even if you don't know what it is, I didn't know what I was getting into when we when we signed to cool the the uh, ninety six Summer Olympics. I figured the Atlanta Summer Olympics, cool, we can handle Atlanta. Well, then we get down there, and they're in Washington D.C. and Miami and Orlando and Birmingham, Alabama, and I was like, wait a minute, what? And there's just Mike and I, my partner and I. So I recruited my brother, and he brought his dad and a couple other neighbors, and we were extremely successful. But just figure it out, but go. And it's just the same thing. I tell a story about Tony Robbins walking on, on coals. I, he invited me out to a couple of deals and I walked on the burning coals with him. And that whole philosophy is just take just once you decide to go, you take the first step and you keep moving. Otherwise, you're going to fall apart, burn yourself and everything else. So take the first step and go. All right, one more pit stop, and then I want to ask you. Uh, we'll we'll end up here with some your your some thoughts, some parting thoughts about pro football and where that sort of sits today. But t- tell me about uh, we kind of glossed over it, but I'm just any recollections, any burning memories about the USFL, your time in Oakland with the Invaders. Um, did you know that it was uh, going to wind up the way it wound up? Um, all that kind of stuff. Obviously, the money was good, and nobody can blame me for for jumping because the USFL was certainly chock full of some great talent for sure for those that short period of time. Yeah, the year I, the year before I signed, um, oh my gosh, his name has slipped my mind. Forty million dollar contract. The quarterback, lefty quarterback with the Forty ers Steve. Uh, Steve Young. Steve Young. The year before, it signed a forty million dollar contract. You know, it was just, and, you know, Trump owned a bunch of it and he was throwing stupid money out. And that's kind of one of the things that ended up caving in the, the USFL. They just burned up all their money. But no, I, no one had any idea, at least I didn't, um, that, that they were going to be folding. Um, it was just, uh, we were in the championship game and we actually should have won that game. And um, our full You scored, scored a touchdown in that game, didn't you? We did. Uh, I did not score a touchdown in that. No, I uh, scored a touchdown in another game. Yeah, I played oh, tight end. In the season, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. For one of the few times tonight, we'll see Doug Cozen, the tight end, on the wing on the right side. You see him down there. Now he's in motion to the left side. Hubert fires into the end zone. Touchdown! The pass complete to the Oakland Invaders, Steve White. White, who lined up on the right side, caught the touchdown pass, and he is the second tackle this season for the Invaders to catch a TD toss. Ray Penny has a catch for seven, and now Steve Wright picks it up. Wright, number 70, comes in in short yardage, blocks for a moment on the linebacker to make him think run, then slips off. Just a little dump pass. That's probably a great thrill. For, he's a backup offensive lineman. Penny plays the other end, and he scored this year also, as you've indicated. 20-7 to seven now, the Oakland Invaders lead, and you see the smile on Steve Wright's face. He's going to be, I bet you they rag him all the way back to Oakland if this game goes to Oakland's favor tonight. You can go over and give Carter some, some advice here in a little while. <laughs> here comes Boyovich looking for his 25th consecutive PAT. Kick is up, and the kick is true, and the Oakland Invaders lead the football game thanks to that right touchdown reception.
Yeah, played tight end during the season. Yeah, always on short yards and goal line in every team I've ever played on. Um, but it was uh, nothing really specific. It was uh, it was uh, again a lot of fun, but it was uh, in. Inferior. Uh, I don't want to say that word. It, well, the, that, the, well, wait a minute. The, I was going to I was gonna ask you about the quality of play. I mean, do you, do you think it was not NFL quality? Yeah, uh, Reggie White was there. Um, I didn't play against him there, but uh, Reggie White. There was there was there was quite a few studs. Herschel Walker, um, Sam Mills, quite a few other big names that ended up coming to the NFL. But no, I was I was I was, I was pretty content to hang there in the in the. Because I didn't really know what was next, so I was ready to content just to hang in the USFL for the next, you know, finish up my three-year contract. And what happens to that contract when it's when the league goes away? Because you were you so, actually, so does every, didn't you have to wait a year? You waited a year just to go back to yes. the NFL, right? Do you Correct. have to do that, or do you choose to do that? No, I had I had to do that because it was just different seasons. But no, the uh, I did not. Uh, that once once the league folded, they were, they were out of money. Yeah, well, and there goes that that sort of career stop. But um, I mean, luckily for you, it, it all wound up uh, with a great sort of uh, a kicker, a nice exclamation point with the Raiders. I'd sure like to, before we take off, uh, just uh, mention the aggressively human. Yeah, well, um, let's let's do that, and then um, I want to get your uh, uh, certain uh, your your thoughts about the NFL and, and and that kind of stuff, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll let uh, we'll get to all the promotional stuff. So whatever you want to do, it's your show. I'm 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 just uh, I'm just no, a you, guest. You've been, you've been great. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, the um, so let's why don't we do this? Why don't we let me get your sense of. Um, of where we are with the NFL and, and pro football and stuff, because I'm sure you've got some opinions about sure. players. I do the quality of play, that kind of stuff. And then we'll let you promote the hell out of the book. I do. It's uh, I don't watch football really anymore uh, until it gets to the playoffs. The, the, the um, weak penalties for touching a quarterback for uh, a hold. the, the, it's just uh it's the game has changed from my years and I'm not trying to be one of these tough old guys, but the game is pretty boring now to me from the guys that, uh, you know, guys are built to blow people up and yet the equipment hasn't changed. Um, I, I did a little, uh, um, PowerPoint on how the equipment hasn't changed since the sixties. It's the exact same equipment. The material has changed, but there hasn't been any additions um, to not as an owner to not have his $10 million offensive tackle or guard or center not wearing knee braces and bodies. All 300 pounders are flying around in there and you're and he's not going to be wearing knee braces. I wouldn't allow him on the field. It's, it's basically NASCAR without wearing your seat. You can wear your seatbelt if you want to, but you don't need to. Um the, the injuries are just, you know, uh, self-made. They don't, uh, there is ways to, I'm not promoting the, the knee braces for everybody, but for sure for the interior line. But, you know, it's just, uh, you've got all these guys that are built to destroy. And so why not build the equipment? Why not add additional equipment? Why not protect the game a little more? It affects so many people. Say if Steve Wright goes out of the game, I'm the starting right tackle and a five-time pro bowler. And you got there's a lot of jerseys in the in the stands wearing number 66, right? And I'm not going to play the rest of the year because somebody fell on my knee. 
I had knee braces. I wore knee braces all through college for every game for practice and the pros and all my games. I went through probably, I don't know, a half a dozen or more knee braces. I would bend them and I'd come off to the side, throw a new one on and I was good to go. My knees are great. It's uh, it, the game. The game has changed too much. You know, then you got, you know, out of a three hour and 12 minute game, you've got 11 minutes of, of action. I understand why rugby players and soccer players go, oh, my Lord, how can you watch this? You know, and just the incessant commercials and, you know, there's an hour and a half feed leading up to games. It's just uh, it just kind of turns me off, actually. Um if I do watch a game, I'll just watch the interior line, watch a garden tackle, how they're playing and, um, you know, working with stunts. And, but yeah, that's, that's my feeling on the NFL. It's, uh, they, the game just is, is really weakened. They're not taking advantage of these guys. They can bench press 600 pounds and do everything else. Um, you know, run up four, seven flat and weight, you know, 350 pounds. They're they're not taking advantage of and they're not they're not making the game better. They're they're really weakening the game, in my opinion. No, sure. No. And, and, and that's why I ask. And, and, you know, we've asked this of Larry Zonka and a lot of other players you know, as we, we, we go. Uh, Ron McDowell back in the day, we talked to, I, you know, there's a whole bunch of various issues. But I guess the last question on that front would be this. Right. So you're mentioning the current uh, use or misuse, perhaps, of the players and the equipment and. Uh, the the current injuries and stuff. But what of the what of the the lagging injuries? What of the what about players that you played with? I mean, obviously, it sounds to me like you're in relatively good health, right? Um, which is maybe a blessing, given sure. given the violence and the uh, the lack even of, of protection even from back in that day. But um, how about some of your 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 colleagues on, on the football field? Have they been? similarly unscathed or is it are you more of an exception rather than the rule i'm a little bit more of an exception i I, i've got a good section about that in my book but i mean just one of my one of my teammates with the raiders uh guard kurt marsh he was on 60 minutes for they amputated his uh from his shin down um he had broken bones in there and and wanted to stay in the field and kept shooting it up and the bones were grinding and um and if he was in so much pain, I had other guys, my, uh, I was the first one in the Raiders to wear a, a plastic shield over my eyes and everybody made fun of me. And a couple of years later, Don Mosbar, the pro bowl center for the Raiders had a fingernail slash his eye and he went blind in that eye and ended up, you know, uh, having to retire. There's, uh, I've had friends roll over in their car that I didn't think drank that, uh, were so drunk, they flipped their car and died. And other teammates blow their brains out. Uh, Mike Weiss, who was a defense tackle when I got to the Raiders, and he got cut and went up to his house up in Sacramento and killed himself. And it's just, uh, yeah, the stories are, I got tons of them. Um, well, yeah, I, and there's, I'm going to get maudlin. I just, what do you, do you think uh, the NFL is doing enough to, and or, or, or do we even recognize, frankly, some of the things, I mean, you know, with CTE and all that stuff, it just feels to me that the more <laughs> business-like it's become and more big business it's become and, and all, the, and it just seems to me like there are some further hidden things that are just not sort of, it's it's worrisome to me and I'm just a fan. Yeah, it's it's coming, but it, um, it, it is improving and it's, it's uh, turning around uh 
you know, an oil tanker in a stream, it's just, uh, it, it should happen a lot faster. I just got the biggest bug of how the equipment hasn't changed at all as players have gone from, you know, an average of 240 pounds or 50 pounds on the offensive line. You know, when I was with the Cowboys in the early 80s, you got fined if you were over 275 pounds. And then the Hogs came in in 83, and so everyone went up to 300 pounds. And then, you know, it's just the the amount of, you know, supplements and nutrition and lifting and knowledge and, and just you. I'm watching evolution. These guys getting bigger and stronger. And the equipment, there's a, there's a helmet. There's shoulder pads. There's, you know, thigh pads. And, you know, it's roughly about it and some tape. And why not? make these guys almost like a robocop um there's 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 equipment out there that you could do this the special forces have gone from big heavy uh knapsacks to you know night goggles and changed all their equipment and they can move fast and they've got the you know the spring-loaded i forgot what they call them skeletal systems for the legs so they can run faster and you know start taking advantage of this and make the game super violent but at the same time, make it 10 times as safe. I think you could, I envision a wide receiver being able to stretch out over the middle to catch a ball and get in a helmet right in the ribs. But he's wearing a flak jacket that's built even better than the quarterbacks wear. And this guy would flip up and down and he hangs on to the ball and jumps up and he goes back to the huddle and he's fine. It is possible. You know, and it, it starts with small steps of at least, you know, start suiting up the 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 trench with all the big bodies falling on each other no i don't know i I got a lot of thoughts on that all right mighty mighty thanks to steve for that delightful conversation and the book is equally delightful again it's called aggressively human discovering humanity in the nfl reality tv and life it is co-authored uh, with his uh, lovely wife, Lizzie Wright, and it uh, can be found on Amazon or wherever you find good books. Uh, and uh, if you go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com, search up this episode number 326 with Steve Wright, uh, you'll find a bunch of convenient links uh, to all the various formats and editions of this book, and you'll be whisked away to Amazon to uh, to get it. We'll get a couple of uh Shekels of referral up. We appreciate that. It is published by Kohler Books, and it is available not only in the hardcover, but also paperback uh, version. Uh, there is a Kindle version as well. And uh, if you'd like to listen to Steve uh, read aloud uh, his audiobook version, you can do that too via Audible. All those links will be found on Amazon and through our website at Good Seats. Still available. Dot com. Real interesting stuff. Uh, and uh, it's not just about uh, the various stops in the NFL and the USFL, um, but also his uh, his uh, exploits with the Survivor Series and uh, as well as uh, founding and running uh, a cooling misting company uh, literally right off the back of his uh, his NFL experience and his football career. Um, and just really interesting stuff and a real interesting guy. And uh, it was great to uh, to meet and discuss and uh, frankly, check off a few boxes of our uh, our eternal quest to kind of uh, have completism here uh, about teams and leagues no longer with us. Our thanks uh, to the great Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Of course, thank you for the knob twiddling. As always, kind sir. 
Uh, let's see. You can follow us online or on uh, your mobile device, whatever it is. Go uh, to uh, X slash Twitter. You'll find us at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find us on threads at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find us on Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. And um, what else? Uh, you can send us email by all means. Hello at Good Seats Still Available dot com. That's pretty easy. And um, that's all I got for you this week. We'll see you next week. Hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday and uh, enjoy the football, everybody. Uh, there's plenty of it to be had. And uh, until uh, next week, uh, we enjoy we enjoyed your company for sure. And uh, we wish you safe travels wherever you might go this holiday season. Bye bye. Bye.